Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Lee McIntyre will join us to discuss disinformation. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, how do we combat disinformation? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Lee McIntyre. Dr. McIntyre is the best-selling author of Post-Truth, which was named a best book of 2018 by the PBS News Hour. Penned several books on the subject, including How to Talk to a Science Denier, and his most recent on disinformation, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you, and thanks for having me back. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a great book. Large amounts of disinformation out there, just generally a war on truth. Why do you decide to put the book together? You know, I just can't quit this topic, and it's because I keep discovering new things about it. And the sad part is that every time I think, you know, I write a book and it's going to get better, in fact, the problem gets worse. What happened is that science denial really morphed into reality denial. The blueprint is the same. The strategy is the same. And I think that what I finally discovered, and the the reason I wrote this book, is that I realized that the crucial role that disinformation plays in both science denial and reality denial, it's really, for the most part, not misinformation where people are just sharing something that is a mistake, but disinformation where there are people at work who have interests at stake and they want people to believe mistruths about climate change or about vaccines or about a stolen election. And that's the sad thing. So this book is focused, it's a short book, and it's focused very closely on how to fight back against disinformation before it does more damage. Pressing issue these days and distinct from misinformation, which is carelessness in some ways, this is actively trying to push things that are untrue. Yeah, that's saying that if there was really one message that I want people to take away, it's this. Misinformation is an accident. It's when you genuinely believe something that isn't the case, and which means that maybe you can be convinced by evidence. I mean, I'm not sure specific cases where you heard the misinformation, you know, how committed you are to it. But the important point is that misinformation is distinct from disinformation, which is a lie. Disinformation is really a propaganda. It's something that someone puts together because they've got an interest at stake. Sometimes it's a financial interest or a political or an ideological interest. And it serves their purpose to have an army of people who believe what they say. And that makes disinformation much scarier than misinformation because it's intentional. Not necessarily a new phenomenon, but one that's become a little more facile in uh, information day and age. 
It, it is. I mean, uh, look, <laughs> people have always lied. I, I think the first conspiracy theory was back in uh, Nero's time in Rome. I mean, po and politicians especially have always lied. What is different these days, I think, is that there is greater amplification. You know, if you look back to the dawn of modern science denial, the big tobacco companies met in 1953 with a public relations expert because they were so worried about this forthcoming study that was going to show that smoking was causally linked with lung cancer. And they, and his advice was fight the science, and they fought it through public relations. Well, back in 1953, that was hard. I mean, you had to take out ads in newspapers. You had to collect the media figures one by one. You had to do a lot of lobbying. These days, it's very easy to amplify this information. And I think that's what makes it so much worse because now we're just surrounded by bad information. And the problem, too, is that because of the way the Internet works, it's very hard to tell what the source is, whether it's a reliable source or not. And so we don't often know who's behind it. And secondary purpose, I think, of disinformation is to polarize us and to make us cynical, to make us feel like it's just impossible to know the truth. And I think there are reasons for that if you look at the people who are sharing it. But it's a very scary moment because all of a sudden it feels like we're just not equipped to fight back against this. And I think that we are, which is why I wanted to write this book, to write about what ordinary citizens can do to fight back against disinformation. It's recognizing the game plan that's at play in terms of disinformation or denying truth, a standard playbook that you point out that is present in a lot of these types of situations. Yeah, and, and I think, by the way, that's one of the best ways to fight back. You can't win a disinformation war unless you realize you're in one. And so it's really important for people just as a first step to understand nefarious individuals out there who profit you know, in many different ways from having a disinformed public and that this is not an accident. It's a strategic denialist campaign, uh, sometimes about science, sometimes about politics. But the point is that people are doing this on purpose. And once we realize that this is happening on purpose and that there's a sort of a set of fingerprints. They push conspiracy theories. They cherry pick evidence. Uh, uh, these sorts of things are the telltale signs of a denialist campaign that a few years back, somebody discovered that all science denial suffered from the same blueprint. Well, now that blueprint is being used in American politics. And so, you know, to understand this, I think is the crucial first step in learning how to fight back. The issue, of course, is being trained in how to evaluate information correctly, things like evaluating sources or knowing what types of evidence should be presented for a different case. That is just imposing somewhat on populace that is overloaded with a lot of other things. Yeah, it's, I think that's a, an insidious thing, right, to make it our responsibility to vet everything. That now what's really required is that we all have to fact check everything because really that's impossible. And so what happens when you're required to fact check everything is you start to be more skeptical and to believe less and less and just to finally give up and think, well, the truth is hard to know. And, you know, so I'm just going to give up on this idea. So, I mean, there is definitely a role for critical thinking and we do bear responsibility for our beliefs. I've got a friend, uh, Andy Norman, who wrote a book called Mental Immunity, in which he 
outlined some steps that you know ordinary citizens can take to toughen up their resilience against bad information. And that's necessary. But I think that not all an individual war. It's not just something, you know, that we each have, we're all in it for ourselves. Because I think in the same way that there are institutional forces sometimes that are behind disinformation, we can work on the institutional forces to help us. One is government. The other is pushing back on media. Just shockingly few people, I think, understand just how much media sources are accomplices to some of uh, what's going on. And I'll give you an example. And I'm not talking here about the liars, the partisan sources, and we all know who I'm talking about here. What what I'm going to say next is that the difficulty is that even reliable media sources don't want to be accused of political bias. And one thing that they do is they'll let both sides talk, even if one side is a liar or almost as bad, they'll chalk the whole thing up to misinformation, not using the word disinformation, because once you use disinformation, then it's a lie. And so there has to be a liar, which means somebody has to be responsible. So the thing that really drives me crazy with major media coverage of the information crisis that we're in is that they don't really cover it as a war. They cover it as a natural disaster. They make it seem like there's this information hurricane and we just we're all just subject to its random forces and there's nothing really that we can do about it. Rather than reporting on some of the dark money behind it, sometimes disinformation is from foreign governments, from our adversaries in the United States. A shocking amount of disinformation about the vaccines came out of Russia. And I don't think that a lot of people know that. And so it makes it more difficult to fight back because how how does an individual citizen fight back against a foreign weaponized disinformation campaign? The Russians are experts at this. They've been doing it since the 1920s. Their whole wing of their intelligence service and their army that is set up to this. It can't just be individual citizens' responsibility to fight back. We need some institutional support. Well, it's very daunting, and the messages of your book is overcoming that barrier, and how do we fight for truth and protect democracy? There, there are a couple of different ways. I mean, I, I at the end of the book, I have 10 steps that an ordinary citizen can take to fight back, other than the one that I've already mentioned, which is just understanding that we're actually in an information war, that this is not an accident. Uh, it's to recognize that Individuals do have power, not just to be defense, not just to train their brains to fight back against disinformation when it happens, but to put pressure on media, to put pressure on our elected officials, to put pressure on others to fight back on our behalf. I think that we are too easy sometimes on our elected officials in allowing them not to push back. I mean, our, our army intelligence services are good at fighting information wars. But because we live in a free society here in the U.S., once disinformation is laundered through a domestic filter, the army can't touch it. It's not allowed. And so there have to be, I think that the the U.S. government actually has to do a better job of this. You look at when Congress has hearings on this problem, they tend to say, well, we're not really looking to regulate the Internet companies at this point, or, you know, there's not really much that we can do. There is a lot. One of the things that I would love to see Congress do is to mandate that the 
social media companies open their algorithms for uh, expert scrutiny. I'm not saying that they need to open them for everyone because it's sometimes uh, you know, proprietary uh, business material, but there should be a panel of experts so that we can have some transparency on their algorithms and when they're likely to lead to trouble, not just find out about it later when there's a, a whistleblower from Facebook or Twitter or something like that, but to have somebody looking at this material, experts in cognitive science and computer science, you know, doing this in advance so that we can head off some of the trouble. You could mask user data, you could make it as anonymous as you wanted, but we really need somebody other than the social media companies which are making money on this, minding this store. One hears this running up against First Amendment rights, free speech issues. How do we balance the two? Yeah, that's the smoke. So that sort of claim itself is part of a disinformation campaign. You'll often hear in the partisan politics in Washington right now, blocking that from Jim Jordan and others, that any attempt to fight disinformation is hurting free speech. And it's not. The thing that I have to say about that is, you know, if you look at these social media companies, Section 230 protects them. Section 230 protects them in case, you know, something makes it through that, you know, is a, a bad thing on their platform. They can't be sued. But it also protects them if they want to take down something. They can't be sued for that either. The problem is that, again, the partisan politics in Washington, Republican agenda right now seems to be to make the claim that any fight against disinformation is an erosion of free speech. And I'll just give people a thought experiment. Suppose that you were a radical believer in free speech. You know, you thought that anybody, no matter how odious their message, they should be able to say it. Well, so you might think that Ku Klux Klan should be able to have a rally in your town and they should get a parade permit for that because that's free speech. You hate it, but it's free speech. Well, there's a difference between allowing it to happen and amplifying the message. I mean, you wouldn't go to that same rally and hand out flyers. You wouldn't get on Facebook and advertise to your friends that there was a Klan rally coming up. But that's exactly what the social media companies are doing, right? They're amplifying bad information. So to mask it and make it sound like it's a free speech issue, it's really not. The social media companies, if they were to crack down on disinformation, they're not disallowing an odious message. They're simply refusing to amplify it. They're not required to amplify somebody else's bad information. And they're perfectly allowed under the law to platform someone. First Amendment protects us against government censorship, not Twitter or YouTube or Facebook deciding that they don't want to show the beheadings or the pornography or whatever it is that we want to put out on our channel. They already censor that kind of thing. They could censor anti-vax propaganda as well. The looming presence of AI threatening to put out even more disinformation. Are we going to fight all this? Well, they don't fight back harder because they don't want to. They make more money if they don't fight back. They privilege engagement through the algorithms. You know, they want more eyeballs on the page. You know, the more conflict, the more engagement that they have, the better. AI is a serious problem. AI, the difficulty coming, I think, with AI is that, you know, you look at something like deep fakes and what that's already done to audio and video evidence, all of a sudden now, we, you know, we're going to have this problem also with written materials. And the difficulty is that you don't 
in this kind of a situation, it's not just that you're going to take a false thing for true. You're also going to begin to distrust even true information and think that it might be false. Last I saw, head, uh, you know, one of the main AI companies was asking Congress to regulate them. The board of these folks met with Biden recently, coming up with a set of principles, you know, that was going to try to allow them to go forward in a responsible way. I continue to be worried, though, because no matter how good those rules are, there's somebody who's going to break them. No matter how careful the originators are of something like ChatGPT, they're fighting very hard now not to let disinformation be come through their program. And I know because I've tried it. I've tried to get it to generate disinformation on vaccines, and I couldn't do it. What that suggests to me is that somebody is in there who cares about truth and that they're fussing with it to make it better. But if it can be meddled with, it can also be meddled with by the disinformer. And I'm afraid that sooner or later, AI is going to become ubiquitous enough that the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese are going to be able to use AI to generate even more, even better disinformation than they already are. You know, the problem of foreign state actor disinformation is already pretty bad. The limit has been quality on people who speak enough fluent English to get it out there in a good enough form. And you saw this in 2016 with some of the memes that came out of Russia. Now, that's not going to be such a problem anymore. So it's something that I really worry about and that Congress really does need to get ahead of. And it can be done at scale, mass quantities, and it's going to be a deluge that we can't sift through. Yep. Well, what, you thought we were in a hurricane already. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's gonna be, I just gave a paper in which I called the AI problem the problem from hell. I mean, just about the time that we think the social media issue in general is so bad that we're, we're all worried about what's going to happen with information in the next presidential election, then AI comes along. It, it really is something that's going to require all hands on deck. And I have to say, although I wrote my book before that version of ChatGPT was released and, you know, scared the hell out of everybody. Some of the things that I say in the book about how to fight back apply as well to the uh, coming AI problem from disinformation. Well, well, the book is a very succinct and one that uh, people can digest in a few sittings. Oh, yes. This was a very, very short book. It's just a little bit over, now with the larger font, it's a little bit over 100 pages. But it is small. It's about the size of Mao's little red book uh, or uh, on tyranny or, or on bullshit, if I can say that on air. You know, those small little books that you can read in one sitting. That was my goal, to have a citizen's guide, you know, a very small thing that you could fit in your back pocket to read in a hurry and decide what you could do to fight disinformation and then pass that book on to a friend. I was really motivated by the idea of the upcoming presidential election to let people know that the stakes at this point are not just that we could lose science, but that we could lose democracy as well. It's the same game plan. In some cases, it's the same people who are trying to undermine our ability to rely on trusted institutions like science and democracy. And we really need to understand the war that we're in. I see on disinformation, it's something of a training manual for people who are in an information war and what they can do to fight back. Well, I certainly hope people will go take a look at it and learn all the great lessons in it. We are running slightly out of time, though. I'm, I'm curious, any final words uh, regarding your book on disinformation? 
Yeah, if anybody wants to learn more about uh, my work, they can go to my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. I've written some earlier books about science denial in particular. And if you're interested in the link between science denial that I've written about before and the reality denial that I'm writing about now, uh, you might take a look at my website where I, I put some, uh, even without buying any other work, you can see some of the connective material for my last three or four books together, which is sort of an argument. And this book is the coda. It's a very short kind of exclamation point on the end now that the stakes are much higher. We were talking with Dr. Lee McIntyre, his new book on disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy. Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you so much for having me back. I enjoyed it. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.